episode 11. Welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is a writer, an avid runner, a journalist and a true fan of the sport. His fantastic book, When Running Made History, offers an incredibly intimate perspective and some unbelievable reporting from some of the major historical events that have also intertwined with the glorious sport of running. He's also a very accomplished runner, posting a 2.18 for the marathon and now at the age of 81 with two knee replacements, posting 25 minutes for a 5k, which is pretty incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, please put it together for Roger Robinson. I'd love to begin sort of with your beginnings, really, and some of your earliest memories of, of running, because I know your your book, When Running Made History, one of the first things it talks about is you being around after the Second World War and being witness to the the, the Olympics that took place in 1948. Is that is that probably your earliest memory that you can remember with, with the sport and with running? Not quite, because I, I was already a fan at the Motspur Park track, mm. which is just, just southwest of London, when, when we lived at, well, not quite New Malden, more like between New Malden and Worcester Park. So we were literally a, a five, ten minute walk from Motspur Park track. So I used to go there as a little boy. Sometimes my father took me to meets, but then I learned to get there myself. And I, I had a hole in the hedge that I used to crawl through so I could get in, get in free, as, as little boys do. <laughs> and after my book, after I told that story in the book, I was delighted that um, somebody who'd been an old running rival of mine, never, never, never quite a friend because we lived in different parts of London, a man called John Thresher, who ran really well. He won a southern three-mile title, I think. And then he went to Canada and became head of Athletics Canada. And he emailed me after the book came out and said he also used to crawl through a, a hole in the head. <laughs> but, the same so he spot. Lived, he, he lived the other side of Motsford Park uh, and went to a different school. So we didn't know each other. But but clearly, you know, this was a foundation of a number of careers mm. <laughs> in, in, in and around running. And while I was there, my, my great heroes were MacDonald Bailey. Uh, who was, I think, Trinidadian by origin, but was running for London University or, or Polytechnic, as it was called, uh, and Arthur Wint, mm. who was Jamaican, and he was the great uh, 880 runner in those days, before 800 metres, 440 and 880. And when I got taken, to my surprise, as a little boy, to the Olympics that day, you know, my, my, we, we lived too far away and we didn't have any money. It was after the war. Nobody had any money really, but we had one neighbor uh, who had no children of his own. And he took a bit of a shine to me and used to take me occasionally to sports events. And he took me, he, he was able to afford to go to the Olympics and took me there that day. And I, of course, wanted to see Arthur Winter, McDonald Bailey. Hmm. And, and when McDonald Bailey didn't win the Olympic gold medal, I was in the way of nine-year-old boys, totally devastated. <laughs> You know, I just I couldn't accept that possibly McDonald Bailey could have been beaten by him. He was like Donald Trump, you know, losing an election. I just <laughs> refused to believe it. <laughs> but, but I did see uh, Emil Zatopek, and that was the real bonus. I mean, there mm. I was, and I already quite liked the long-distance race. I used to like watching the three miles at Mosford Park, mm. which was unusual. Most, most of my friends only liked watching the sprints and the steeplechase. The steeplechase is great for little boys to watch because you go and stand by the water jump and hope that people will fall in. Uh, and, uh, but but I, I also like the, 
the three vials. I, I kind of always liked the drama of it and the sense that, oh, you never knew quite who was going to win and that they had to persist. And that obviously that appealed to me at some at some level. So this 10,000 meters that we saw at the Olympics just, just really hooked me. And I got the privilege of seeing Emil Zatopek, who's one of the great athletes of all time mm. and the great people of all time. And what I wrote about in the book was this was just after the war. The whole world was struggling. The Cold War was just beginning. The world, you know, having just finished one war was kind of looking as if it was on the way to the next. And Zatopek came along and won that race and won it not only devastatingly as a competitor, but in the most kind of amiable and supportive way of the rest of the field. Mm. And every time he lapped somebody, and you could say this is a bit patronizing, but he would kind of give them a little tap and encourage them. And he did that just coming in on the finishing straight when he just lapped a Frenchman, actually an Algerian, I think, Algerian or Moroccan Frenchman is because they were part of France at that time. I forget his name. But anyway, um, Zatopek just kind of gave me a little pat on the shoulder. And we all thought, this is great. You know, this is a nice man. You know, he's a great winner. But we don't all have to fight each other all the time. And he's running for Czechoslovakia and as it was and they're supposedly the enemy because they're wearing red and associated with the soviets and etc and there he was just being a nice guy as he always was mm. and do you think it was quite do you think coming straight off the heels of the second world war was there a sense of this felt to see that sort of um generosity within within the sport and the sportsmanship did you feel that was was important for people to witness after what they'd been through very much so. And that's that's actually the theme of my book. It started as a history of modern running. But then I realized that very often running has been more important than just a sport. Mm. And that was one of them. And that, that, I think that consciousness really began for me when I and my wife, Catherine Switzer, ran in the Berlin Marathon in 1990. Oh, and so just, yeah. just before the war, just as the war was about to fall? No, the wall had come down and it was three days before official reunification of Germany. And, you know, I realized that race was such a celebration of mm -hmm. freedom and openness. And a lot of the Western runners like us contributed money to help runners from East Germany who had no money come and run in that race. And it, the whole thing was kind of we're all being nice to each other. The walls down, the barriers are gone. And that Berlin Marathon was a wonderful symbolic occasion. And that was the day when I think I realized, hey, running is, modern running is more than just a sport. This is not just like a tennis tournament or, you know, or a cricket match. There's, there's, there's something different going on here. And I was writing that book. I mean, I wrote the book because I was trying to figure out just exactly what was going on. And I chose, I think it was eventually something like 12 or 16 events that I had personally been at, so, so mm. it's kind of eyewitness, but where the running event was meant something more. And the 48 Olympics was one. You know, it was the world had somehow made those Olympics happen with no resources. Uh, they were called the austerity Olympics. You know, the athletes slept on, on school classroom floors and went to the games in army lorries. <laughs> and and it, it really helped the world to heal and to get a sense of moving forward. Hmm. There have been other occasions, you know, then as, as the book went on, some of the events I write about are celebratory, you know, like the Berlin one and like the 100th Boston Marathon in 1996. And some of them are kind of um, what you might call cathartic hmm. or uh, 
an expression of resilience and survival, like nine, like the New York Marathon after 9-11, mm. or like the track meet that we put on in Wellington a few days after the Christchurch earthquake. And, and mm. so these are cases when I, I tried to show we were going back to the, the ancient Greek idea of having a funeral game, you know, where you, you celebrate somebody's life when they've died by putting on essentially a track meet, you know, by having races and discus throw and so on. And that's, that's, that's what the games are in, in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It's sort of so a celebration I, I, of life in the face of death, really. Yes, absolutely. And I, uh, yes, and, and I could and, and express that through our ability to compete at the highest level, you know, mm. to kind of fulfill life at its, at its, at its highest level. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to come back and touch on some of those things that you were you were talking about um, then with 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 nine eleven and, and and Boston after after twenty thirteen maybe a bit later. But I'd I'd love to start again with with where running sort of started for you after witnessing these things as a, as a young nine year old boy seeing the Olympics and peeking through that gap in the hedge in Motspur. When when did you start running? When did you? Was there a time when you was it was it a university or was it earlier when you actually started to? Because you started on the track, right? Or before you found no the cross country, cross country, definitely, right? Definitely cross country was was my first love. Mm. Uh, I I went I, I got a county Surrey County scholarship to King's College School Wimbledon, mm-hmm. so we were right by Wimbledon Common, and that's where I started my running and at the uh the, the real reason i became a runner i'm not sure if i should confess this is, is because i hated rugby really? <laughs> <laughs> well I was, I was never big enough for for, for, for rugby you know as a little skinny boy and one of the first games of rugby i played when i went to that school at age 11 somebody jumped on my, on my back and i broke my collarbone so i oh my word <laughs> and I, I really didn't much enjoy putting my head between other people's backsides and and, and all and all of that so when i went into the senior school at kcs mm. you could you could join the, they had just started a cross country club i was able to join that and and thus escape from playing rugby and i I'd, I'd already done some long distance running once when i was age 9 i ran 3 miles at motley park when it was open to the public on on sunday morning and I thought, oh, I like the three miles, so I'll run my well across. I was, I was totally exhausted. And, and my mother reported I spent the rest of the day in bed, <laughs> which which still still happens sometimes after a long run on this on a Sunday morning. So, so the, tra- the tradition continues. But um, no, that's when I began. It was it was it was on Wimbledon Common, uh, running cross country, and I immediately loved the fact that it was you were running not only against other people because I was certainly to begin with not not in any particularly particular way good not mm. quite good but never very good um but you're also running with and against the terrain mm. and the weather you know one day it would be muddy and another day it would be windy and, and, and there were hills as you go down to down to queensmere on on wimbledon common and all of that i've still got in my head that course i could i could reproduce whatever it is 70 years later so that's where I got the love of running and competition and became eventually captain of the cross-country team and then when I went on to Cambridge I, I kept doing it there and, and by that time I'd also joined a club 
So when did you discover the marathon distance then? When did that come? Oh, that, that came much later. Um, and what, why, was um, there, where, why, where was that gap from? Was that just work and life? It's hard life for people and... to understand now. The marathon in those days was not the big thing that it is now. Mm. The marathon was a slightly eccentric event, kind of at the, at the edge of running. And the big things to us were track, you know, as, I, as they began to get a bit better, and especially cross country. For somebody of my level with limited pace, who was never going to be an Olympian, Olympian, the best I could do was in cross country. It was also a club thing, so you were really pushing for your club team. And I was always training hard, and of course I had, you know, I had a life as well. You know, I had to, I had to, you know, get a degree and a PhD, and you know, get married, have children, get a job, and start lecturing, and all of that. So running was always it was never something that could be in any way full time. Mm. It was just something that was somehow somehow fitted in. And I just never had time for, for the marathon. Yes. So, so I was always aiming for the next cross country race, or then it would be track season. And I was trying to bring my times down at three miles, six miles, 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters. Uh, when I moved to New Zealand in 1968, I thought just before that, that it might be time to run a marathon, but I, got so absorbed then in the New Zealand club racing scene uh, that the marathon just kept being sidelined. And But then in when I was on study leave in America in 1980, hmm. I realized that something had happened. And it, instead of people talking about cross country, they were all talking about the marathon. And of course, what had happened in America was that Frank Shorter had won the gold medal in the Olympics in 1972, and then the silver medal in 1976. And the New York Marathon had gone into the streets in 1976 and it got bigger and bigger and bigger over those four years. And then everybody was talking marathon. You know how it is, or it was in running, if you met a runner, if you and I met, within a few moments, we would exchange in those days, in my day, you would, ex you would exchange your best placing at the national cross country. And mm. then you'd know, you know who the other guy was. By 1980, it had become, what's your best marathon time? Right. And I didn't have one. And I felt kind of like a virgin at an orgy or something. I had no credentials. So, so I, I got in some longer runs and I ran the New York Marathon that year at age 41. And with that a, was my first. With a pretty impressive time. It was like 2.22.13, is that right? I did, did 2.22, yes, uh, that, that, that time. And do you think, and was then, it was that all your cross-country and all your track work that you think that had laid that foundation for you to go out and run that oh, yeah. sort of time? Yes, yes. I was never a high-mileage trainer because of the pressures of work, mm. uh, but I would be training fairly consistently at about um, 80 miles a week. No, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't often go over 100, uh, and with quite a lot of quality. So it just really required adding on some, some two-hour-plus runs mm. to get ready for a marathon. I did rather more after the New York one, in, that was 1980, and then I got invited to Vancouver mm. in 1981 uh, for a, a marathon that was kind of being billed as, as a North Amer I think a kind of World Masters Team Championships. The Canadians, very, very good group of people in Vancouver. Uh, and they had this great idea of, of having Australia against Canada, against America, against New Zealand or something. Anyway, New Zealand sent a, a master's team of three and I, I was in that team. And then I got, so I was able to prepare better for that one and got third overall and ran 218. 
Yeah, two eighteen four, and that's a record that still does that still hold for that event. It still holds as the as the Masters record at Vancouver. I'm glad to say, yes, and and quite often the it's the race isn't won as fast. I, I was doing the announcing there for my thirtieth anniversary and was able to, with some pleasure, to announce that the the winning Kenyan had actually not not run as fast as I ran winning the Masters. <laughs> that's got that's got to be nice as the announcer to have that. Exactly, that, that just kind of slipped out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so what what was that journey then for you in terms of training going from 222 down to 218 because that that is you know those, those four minutes that's quite a jump like was there something specific that you added into your training in order to sort of sharpen up your time was it more mileage well, well, or yes i've always said it's 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 really hard i used to say it was impossible but the kenyans have proved me wrong to train for a marathon yeah. uh, because you just can't do that quantity of work my training principle has always been what i've called the quantity of quality mm. and that is if you're going to race say 10k and if that 10k is going to take you say 40 minutes then you need to have done 40 minutes quality in training not every week but but you need to have built up to that and have done that once or twice uh, in a session of say eight by five minutes or four by ten minutes or however however you do it you know mm. however different people do it and that was always my principle. It was hard to apply that to the marathon. But I did do some sessions of five, say, four or five or six by 15 minutes. So I was getting near the, you know, the total session. I'd done an hour and a half of quality. Mm. And that was as near as I could get to it, plus putting in more longer runs than, than, than I habitually did. Mm. So, so so I built, built up for it that way. Um, but I'm not sure that I ever quite converted to being essentially a marathon runner because you know still always enjoying the 10ks and 15ks probably my, my best range actually is probably 15k to half marathon that that's your preferred distance that's what the one we probably yeah yeah probably that's 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 where i perform best I, and just coming back actually to your sort of competitive life as a runner because i've heard you talk about in in interviews a particular race um it was the world over 50 road championships 10k with you versus Jim McNamara and you kind of have that as a a race that you really kind of one that's one of your sort of cherished memories as a competitive runner would you sort of tell us yeah. a little bit about that yes I, I put that one into the book in the last chapter which is about running for older people mm. almost everything that's important about the, the sport in fact everything that's really important about the sport still lasts Mm. that's not that, that's not something that finishes at 40 or 50 or, or or even 70 you still get the competition you still get the sense of preparing for the competition get, getting yourself ready doing the training being right on the day then you've got the actual race tactics and that's what that's what i tried to describe about that race where um i had no idea of the competition because it was a world championship and mm. uh and, and i had i did, had no idea who people were uh, but I saw this green singlet with a with a fifty on the back, and <laughs> up, up about thirty or forty yards ahead of me. So I tracked him, but kind of let him go a bit too fast on the first mile or two. This is this is a field with you know you can see the bobbing forty and forty five and and, mm. and just that one fifty, uh, and then I caught him at about three and a half miles, and then kicked away from him with about a mile and a half to go. So tactically, it went exactly right for me. And I think he probably did run his first mile a few seconds too fast, which, which at that level can be crucial. Mm. And then a few days later, we raced on the track, uh, 10,000 meters on the track. 
and he got smarter by <laughs> so so of course <laughs> you know, he was he was he was as cunning as i was basically and 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 had a faster sprint so he sat on me until we came into the last lap and i did everything i possibly could to drop him but didn't succeed this time he knew, he knew what he had to do and then we became best friends and and remained very fond of each other until his death about two or three years ago so he was and he was a real really big figure in ireland you know people mm. people loved jim uh and it was a very short-lived friendship we never saw each other again but we kept in touch now and then uh and i've and followed each other's running and this is what happens in running you know you you the very intensity of the competition gives you a bond mm. which is which is very rare and 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 you can devote half an hour or an hour or, or in a marathon two or three hours to try to beat the hell out of somebody yeah try to completely kill them and then you're actually at the same time you're becoming best friends and because you're sharing that experience and it in no way cuts across you know your your interaction as as human beings in fact you respect each other and like each other more because you've had that experience that's part of the appeal of it Mm, that shared experience I love that and you t- you took a little bit you're talking then about your sort of your strategic element going into that race was was that a big component of your training as as well would you have a plan of attack going into specific races about where you were going to where you were going to push where you were going to hold back or was that something that would happen sort of naturally during the course of the race the key thing about me was that I was born with no fast twitch fibers. So I've never run a, I've never won a race on a sprint finish in, mm. in my life. Um, oh, I can think of one actually when I went, when I did. <laughs> and that was at school going back to King's College School. And we raced against a Catholic school. And I had this big battle with, with the, the leading member of their team. And he kept crossing himself during the race. And I thought that was unfair. Uh, so I was I was incensed to beat him in the sprint finish. <laughs> that's that's the only one I can think of. Um, so I've always had to think my way to to win, and that's actually why it's another chapter in my book. When at the age of twenty or twenty one, I went to Rome as an as an English student, mm. and I saw Murray Halberg from New Zealand. And at that time, I had no idea that I would ever move to New Zealand. But I saw Murray Halberg win the 5,000 meters by making a break on the field with three laps to go. And whenever people say, what's the greatest race you've ever seen? I say always now, you know, even this, this now is 60 years later, without hesitation, I say Murray Halberg at Rome, partly because he showed me a way that I could win mm. without having the sprint finish. And that's basically what I used to do. I used to kind of ask them the question, with three laps to go, with two and a half laps to go, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a 10K on the road, at four mile, or whenever, you know, you you get, people used to say to me, when do you, how do you know when to make the break? And I would say, you, you smell it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't describe it any other way. You just, you know how it is when you're in a group mm. operating all at the top level, you get a set, just a sense from the way the other guys are moving as to, who's who's really there who's dangerous who's struggling uh, you listen to their breathing you kind of key off them in every way and and then you choose the moment when which is going to be to your best advantage and to their greatest disadvantage mm-hmm. 
and sometimes it's maybe sooner than you planned or, or so, so you can't plan a precise moment I don't think but I, all, all of this is just me making up for my deficiencies you know <laughs> that's great though I, I love that I love that just... in fact I was born without any talent and so you so you struggle you struggle to compensate for that I love that though of just smelling the moment to go to just you know pull that trigger and go for it and then hold on until the end of the race that's fantastic and um, you talked you touched on something then um about and it comes up in the book as well about running and and and, and growing older and I think you know running has and I think you've talked about this redefined sort of society's views on 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 aging and and the you know the sort of the relationship between aging and 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 exercise and i know you've had some personal experience well you've you've just you've had both of your knees replaced is that right and you're and you're still running yes, it's incredible yes. like it's a ama- it's amazing like it's i'd love if, for people to hear more about if, it because it's so inspiring if, if we were on camera um i would introduce you now to to two very important people their names are russell and mark and they're actually my knee replacements. They, <laughs> they, appear, they appear at running seminars. They've made appearances on television. I put smiley faces on my knees, you know, around the scar on it. On, on each knee. And, and Russell, Russell and Mark appear. And they, they have very strong personalities of their own. In fact, we, we published recently in America the world's first live interview with two knee replacements. And that's never been done before. <laughs> <laughs> and Russell and Mark answered the questions and, and, and gave, gave commentary on, on, on how they went. Uh, and what, what really lies behind this is, is that um, what I, I didn't want to stop running. Mm. I, thought I, I thought when I had the first knee replacement, that was it. I thought I, I would never run again. And, and that was basically what the surgeon thought. That was Russell. Uh, and that was his advice. And then, as I so one of your knees is named after your surgeon. Yeah, they're named after the surgeons who put the, who who implanted them. Yes, one's Russell uh, and the other's Mark. Oh, I see. And, and, and appropriately for my life, you know, Russell is a New Zealander, mm-hmm. uh, and Mark is American, and so that's a, that's that's absolutely appropriate. Mm. Uh, the great thing about having them is, at my age, you know, I'm I'm 81, so I can't really run a PB. I go out and run 5K or 10K. Mm. Uh, of course, I used to run PBs when I was 25, you know, running for England or New Zealand or whatever. But Russell and Mark can because Mark's only three years old. So that gives me PBs and they get all excited. And that's why they have these smiley faces when they meet, when they meet the public. I, I didn't really plan to start running again. But, and the way I describe, like, describe it is that I didn't disobey Russell and I didn't have smart ideas or anything, but I just sort of forgot mm-hmm. because you know, I was out walking and I thought, well, how can one minute jogging be worse than three hours walking? So I did one out one minute jogging and then the next day I did maybe two minutes jogging and then it just kind of went on from there. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't supposed to be doing it, um, but then I started working with Russell Tregoning, um, and he produced some research papers, and he got interested in this process. And people have gone on being interested in the process. And, and in fact, uh, about three, two or three years ago, and I was writing about Russell and getting back to running, and I actually got back to elite level by age group standards. Wow. You know, so at 75, at age 77, at age 77, say about four or five years after 
Russell, uh, I was running 22 minutes for 5K, which That's is amazing. probably not probably not good enough to win the world championship, but but it's good enough to get close to the podium at mm -hmm. world championship level in in that age group. So so I was winning winning the age group, and that was on a knee replacement. So I was writing about it, uh, and to my complete surprise, I received a notice from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, who gave me a literary award, a media award for promoting knee health and and saying exactly what they wanted here because now the research is the science is beginning to has begun to change mm. and most surgeons now would probably tell you yes you it's okay to do do some running because to try and put it in simple terms they used to think that by running on on knee replacement you would actually loosen the prosthesis and then it would have to be replaced and you'd have real problems and so on they're now beginning to think that by strengthening both the muscle and the bone, which you do by impactive exercise, you're actually less likely to loosen it and you're strengthening the whole thing. And therefore, like everything else these days, you know, the whole medical mm -hmm. profession over the last, say, 30, 40 years has shifted from lie down and recover to get up and exercise. And, and when I gave a paper one time at the, um, I think it was the American uh, Sports Medicine Association, and their, their kind of their mantra is exercise is medicine. Yeah. So, and, that, and that's, that's, and when you said running has been, has been a leader in this, and I think that's absolutely right. We, we are, running is, is a leader in revaluing and kind of recalibrating notions of, of aging. When you get somebody like Ed Whitlock, Mm. running the times that, that that he did at age 70 and 75 and, and 80. Uh, and the very idea, I mean, when I was a child, the thought that your grandparents could run or even walk was just it was mm. completely unthinkable. And now at this age, um, I've got every intention of, of continuing to run just until I drop, basically. Uh, and I don't see why just the joints should stop me now that we've got science as good as it is. I mean, mm. you, you have to find this. I'm not claiming credit for this because the, the the surgical procedures are so good now that you can actually do it and get away with it. And and I this this year on two knee replacements uh, and at 81, I was running 25 minutes for 5k. So it's you know it's getting. <laughs> it's still incredible. I I, I my my. When people ask me about sort of what what do you want to what do you want to achieve with with running and obviously there's there's times that I'd like to get and and PBs that I'd like to to sort of smash or whatever and races and and all that kind of thing but for me it's it's the longevity of it that the, is the thing that I most want to be able to preserve and I want to I don't want to be you know someone down the line who who has to sort of step away for it from injury and various reasons and stuff i just want to keep keep going so to to hear that is is really really inspiring and when when you were first taking those first like 1 minute 1 minute jogs 2 minute jogs was we, uh, there must have been an element of of fear as well of not wanting to kind of undo the 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 surgeon's work were you treading pretty carefully when you were first starting to sort of up the pace definitely i was terrified that the surgeon would see me <laughs> Catch you, catch you red-handed. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean that—that that was one kind of fear. Of course, you know we lived in Wellington, and, <laughs> mm. and we, we we become good friends. But the other fear, and that's still there. I'm 
very, very careful on rough going. Mm. I've learned to my great, great regret, and this is a real loss, that I can't really run cross country anymore. Not unless it's not real cross country. If it's if it's on a groomed golf course or trail or something, I can do that. But is that is that because of all the uneven surfaces the, the and une the unevenness, which I used to love and I used to think that actually strengthened my ankles and did it did everything that most people go to the gym for. Mm. Um, and and I'm also very careful running downhill. Right. So I tend to teeter downhill because I don't like that impact. Uh, and one time I did, I tried the cross country and Russell Trigoni actually came out and watched me. And he said he went home and had nightmares because he knew that that knee was only glued in. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he didn't like to see what I was doing. And, and I realized then that I, it's really hard to generate the pace. I'm nervous at rough, at rough footing and, and downhill. So just got to face up to the realities and there's still plenty of running that I can do. Mm. And are you taking, are you, have you got any, anything on, on the calendar, any sort of races that you're sort of aiming for or anything you'd like to sort of take part in? No, I've had another, another little setback this, this year. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of a, a, another injury, which, so I'm now just building back up after that. Mm. Uh, and of course, I mean, who's, who can set targets at, at the moment? I, I, my target for 2020 was going to be the World Masters Championships in yeah. Toronto. That was cancelled. Then they they kind of uh, rescheduled that to be in conjunction with the European Masters Championships in Finland in, I think it's May. Well, is anything going to happen in May? I, mm. I don't think so. Yeah. So, so, so just, you know, we're incredibly lucky here in New Zealand. And I'll just get back to some road racing and and i've missed a few things over the last two or three months which i, I regretted but i'd like to get back to those and start racing again in national road championships and park runs and regular 10ks and all of all of those things and just enjoying the whole community that i that like i always do mm. just as soon as i can so no no particular targets at the minute just just got to get back and so well, let's 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 sort of circle back then to a time when running was in sort of in full swing, and we talked about well, you mentioned about running, um, you know, re re redefining or reflecting moments in in society and, and in history, and you sort of touched on it earlier. And I'd love to get your perspective on when running has been or bared witness to moments of real tragedy or or real moments of profound moments in, in history and there's there's moments in the book where you talk about um running um around the time of 9-11 and running or you were a commentator uh, at the 2013 boston uh, marathon and then being there the yeah. following year as well and yeah. there, there are two moments in the book that really kind of zing out as as moments where running has really been a real uh, a real parallel to those moments in history yes i don't want to make it sound too gloomy as, a, as if running is only a response to disaster but that's that's one of the things it is yeah what, what i realized we were talking before about berlin what i realized that day is that this strange business that we've somehow invented from new york onwards of running thousands of people through the streets of, of cities that's become not only a sport, but it's become also a way in which a community, a society gets together and can express something that's commonly important. And in Berlin in 1990, it was this sense of a whole new freedom and a unity and a, and a breakthrough from 20 years of, of depressive separation across Europe. Uh, and sometimes it, it then that later it came in, in 2001, 
it became America's really best expression of its resilience and determination to survive. And I personally did not like all the George Bush kind of, you know, gunslinging, we're, we're going to go get them um, stuff. Mm. I didn't think that was the proper response at all. I, but, but I thought that it was a real proper response to have um, thousands of people out in the street saying, we are going to do what we like to do. This is important. This is innocent. This is good for everybody. It's healthy. It's good for our society. And we are going to do it despite the risk. And that race, uh, first of all, there was the Marine Corps mar Marathon in Washington, D.C. the week before. And that was similarly defiant and resilient with a slightly more, slightly more militaristic edge to it because of the nature of the event. Um, the New York one was the day on, on which New York and America, and I think, you know, the whole of kind of our global, if you like to call it Western culture, however you want to describe it, um, said, we're still in business. And, and you know, this is, this is a horrible thing that's happened, but we're going to go ahead. We're not going to be stopped. And we're going to do something which is extremely risky. And we knew it was risky. And, and Catherine and I talked about it, and we didn't want to talk too widely about the risks that marathon running took. But those risks, of course, were then revealed in, in 2013 mm. with the attack on the finish line of the Boston Marathon. And then again, as this, that's another chapter in the book, and that's actually the piece that I wrote on the spot. My editor got through to me by email and said, just about an hour after the bombings, and said, can you say what this means for running? So I had Oof. to... I had to uh, yes, I know. Yes, that's a bit. So you, I mean, so you, so you were there in You were commentating, right? For, no, I was for, writing. For, I was writing for uh, Runners World Running Times. Forgive me. So you were there in uh, in a writing capacity, and then this email pops up. So you, having just witnessed the event or been around when when the event had happened, then you have to kind of process that and put it into uh, uh, into an article. Like what? What? what that must have been. Yeah quite the mental journey to go, go well, it, was, it was a tough one that uh, in a way that's been been kind of my job as as a writer i mean i've done when you talk about commentary i have done tv commentary and i've done stadium commentary mm. and both of those are in the book because nobody's ever really written about what it's like to be a stadium announcer mm. uh, and what it's like to be a tv commentator and how you have decisions about what you're going to say like i'm just i'm backtracking a bit now no no when 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 i was commentating on the 100 meters in the seoul olympics and knew perfectly well that most of the field were on drugs how do you say that mm. <laughs> because you 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 got to get sued mm. <laughs> so so you have to find one and i referred to i think chariots of fire and i said when people look back on this race like in a chariots of fireway who will be the hero and who will be the villain I said, try just as a way of trying to try, trying to get that. Um, did you, so did you do that a lot in your commentating career? Then were you sort of trying to be true to yourself in, in a certain way by sort of touching on things that you knew you couldn't come out and outright say, but you felt like if you sort of touched on it, you were at least doing your, you weren't doing yourself a disservice by completely ignoring the fact that perhaps, you know, people were doping or, or whatever it was that you wanted to say. Yeah, you're, you're you're always doing that, and you're, and you're doing doing it as a, as a writer as well. There's there's mm -hmm. always, and it's 
I mean, it's not worth running publications are much too small to take on the big shoe companies. Mm. Uh, so you just you just have to tread carefully and you use New Zealand television. You know, if, if, if they'd got sued, the whole the whole television service in the entire nation would go down. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I couldn't do that. Um, but then so I've done that role. But then as a writer, I've quite my role has quite often been to articulate kind of what this means. And that's and that was the stuff that I began to put together in, in the book. Like nine, after 9-11, I wrote a piece for Running Times magazine in America that was just called A Run in Central Park. But the run in Central Park was on that day after mm. the after the attack and kind of all, in a way it was a stream of consciousness piece about mm. what was going through my head as I ran around the park, you know, and past the, here you mentioned Shakespeare, past the statue of Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, and 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 thought of um, Henry V once more. Yeah, well, no, not yeah, but yes, yes. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as mm. modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war rings, it, and, and and so on, you could do it better than I could. <laughs> uh, but, but that and and then and then saw a, a dog chasing a stick, and I thought of a poem by Thomas Hardy when in, called in the in the time of breaking of nations. When he says what really matters is not these wars, not these nations making war with each other, it's that couple walking along, you know, yonder maid and her white go mm. whispering by. And I can't remember quite, but they, they, you know, their story will survive when the nation, when when the when wars are past and forgotten. Mm. Uh, so, so that piece was trying to articulate, try trying to give thoughts to what what running meant in that context. Mm. again the one the one in boston so what does it mean and i started by saying you know i've been in boston for a week every experience has been positive we've had parties we've had press conferences we, we've, we've had street races we, we've had everything and everybody's got on well the whole atmosphere of running is positive is generous is welcoming is inclusive nobody is non-judgmental if you're a runner you're welcome doesn't matter doesn't matter what whether you wear, wear a turban or or an eskimo suit you know it's it's whatever mm. uh, and then suddenly somebody comes and drops a couple of bombs at our finish our finish line and i said i feel as if my home had been invaded and i tried to get that sense of the running community and what it means and and what we'd lost uh and we did lose we did lose quite a lot by that um and the the, the security level of things like the new york marathon now is something that makes it it's not quite the same as it used to be to to watch it because always, you know, there are the trucks parked on the streets and the, the concrete bollards and the cops everywhere and, and so on and so on. And it's regrettable that it happened, but we've survived and the sport has, has, has gone on and, and it will survive. And, and my job is to try and articulate that. And, and, and what then, do you see down the road for the sport in the future for things that you might have to, you know, you might be called upon by an editor to articulate down the line? Do you see anything coming up down the road that in terms of changes in the sport or or things that the sport needs to needs to change um, in order for it to sort of move forward and, and progress. Can you see anything that you might be tasked to articulate? Well, there's a little thing called COVID-19. Yes, that, that old chestnut, <laughs> yes. Which, is, yeah. which, has, which has, as it were, totally destroyed the sport. Mm. Um, and we, we, have a, we have a major problem because you in this situation, in a situation of viral infection, you cannot conceive anything worse than putting thousands and thousands of people from all around the world together and jamming them together, 40,000, uh, 
in close contact and having them all spitting spitting on each other and sharing each other's sweat and and picking up water we're we're, we're in deep trouble mm. and we've got to figure out ways of doing it and and we've got to see what happens will will the will the vaccine work will the world get back to any kind of normal uh already some things are going on i'd like to see the sport um actually doing some more creative thinking Mm. Uh, I've, I've said, I said in my book, in fact, this is a, a, a working title for the book was creative energy, because that seems to be the phrase that describes running the whole running movement over the last 40 years best been incredibly creative. And now we've got to get creative again. Mm. And I don't know what the ideas are. Something I would like to see very much is dividing fields. You know, if we're going to take advantage of the situation, if we can't put 40,000 people together, let's put them off. 40 at a time and divide them into age groups mm. and the great advantage then you see would be that at the age of 81 i might win would <laughs> 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 it be, it'd be like a whole day it, it, day of events as well you could have all the different it, fields it'd be great that that can work i've seen that done mm. that was done once in new zealand it was a great success Really, and I, yeah. I remember that day. You know, I ran in whatever age group I was. I think it was forty-five or something, and ran that race. But the rest of the day, I was doing the announcing, mm. and somebody else did the announcing. I was running, and it was made a huge kind of festival of running that went on all day, and that really worked. So it's it's just one idea. So that's one thing that I would have to do. Another thing I I, I put in my book in terms of where running needs to go next. This came in the chapter about the cancellation of the New York City Marathon in 2012 and what the sport learned from that. And I don't want to put it too critically, but in simple terms, what we learned is that we can't keep on expecting poor people to come out onto their streets and cheer for rich people. We've got to do a bit of rethinking. We've, we mm -hmm. pride ourselves on how inclusive we are. Well, that's justified, but we're not as inclusive as we could be. And we're not really inclusive right down through right through the socioeconomic groups. Uh, and we need to reach out more. And to their great credit, New York Roadrunners learn that from that. And they they are now going, taking much more trouble to go into the boroughs, put on races in Staten Island, put on races in Queens and the Bronx and so on. And we've got to do more of that. Mm. And we've got to try try and reach out and we've got to make ourselves more open to immigrant communities and, and et cetera, because running is such a wonderful community uh, that anybody can benefit from it. And we've got to try and make sure that as many people benefit from it as possible. This goes back to really my my origins, you know, which was which was Harriers. It was cross it was cross country running. Mm. which was never an elite sport I and mean, we did it at cambridge university but but i remember we, there we were at cambridge a bunch of bunch of toffs i suppose though most of us were, were scholarship boys our great hero was roy fowler who was a staffordshire painter and decorator who who had only had three years education because of his ill health as a child and who took his teeth out to run and roy trained harder than anybody else on earth at that time and we worshipped him so that's how that's how running has always been for me it's been been a total mix i like to say that through running i have made friends from every level of society right down the social scale to lawyers and politicians <laughs> or or whatever you know you're just the last line according to your audience you know in your case <laughs> right down the social scale to, to interviewers and actors <laughs> uh. 
<laughs> no, I love that. I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that as it is. That's brilliant. I love that. And I, I, to- I, I totally agree. You know, as, as entry fees seem to be getting more and more expensive and, and more elusive, I think you, you're right. We kind of lose the, the, the joy of what the sport is to a lot of people, which is something that is uh, immediate and instantly accessible. And the, the, the more barriers that come down to sort of preclude people from that, I think the, the worse the sports sport gets. And now we, we, we mentioned it a little bit at the start and we sort of started talking a little bit about, about Shakespeare before we started recording. And I'd love to just touch on before we finish um, your, your fascination between the intersection between running and, and great literature, because you've also written a book specifically about that subject and are there any are there any real moments in literature where there's running parallels that really kind of ring true for you or have real significance for you as a writer yourself oh a a great many really not not many in shakespeare Mm. Um, but he must have seen some running because in in henry the sixth he refers to somebody who lies down like a runner who's spent after a race so he so he must have he must have known known some something about seen Mm. some football racing against each other or, or something what i tried to do in that in that book was uh was write about running really as a subject not just as a sport mm. so so people people running in in all kinds of contexts and i actually opened it and perhaps this is one when robert louis stevenson has a wonderful passage in kidnap when he says most people have never experienced being really tired mm. really physically tired uh, you know the hero, the hero um, and Alan Breck are escaping from the Redcoats, and they they just they do this kind of run, walk, jog, run, jog, jog, jog all day to get away from them, and they get and, and he and Stevenson describes how you get so kind of irritable <laughs> when, you, when you get really tired and you, know, you lose your normal defenses. Well, he's right. Most people don't know you can go to literature and. The experience of being really, really tired, which we all get in a marathon, mm. when you hate everybody, you know, if your mother <laughs> came along, you know, you'd, <laughs> you'd insult her because, <laughs> so because you feel so miserable. Mm. Uh, writers haven't got that. Stevenson did get it well, and and, and a few others, a few others did here, here and there. Mm. Um, but my whole idea with that book was that his running, which is so essential to to the human species. You know, we've only survived because we can run, and it's absolutely something which is really basic to us. People have run through every generation, and yet nobody would written a book about the literature of running. They'd written books about the literature of baseball, the literature of cricket, and and, and all of those, but nobody had done had done running. So I did that one. It starts with the ancient Greeks, uh, mm. though it's mostly about English liter- literature in English. Mm. Um, so American. I, uh, New Zealand, and I, I tried to get stuff from South Africa and, and Australia, but didn't manage, didn't succeed in, in finding very much. But scenes, scenes in novels, or just just passages where where people run. Thomas Hardy has a wonderful passage in his first novel called Desperate Remedies, when the young man is he's running home because of an emergency, and he runs across the fields. And Hardy describes how the different kinds of mud, of soil, cling to you. And any cross-country runner will know what that means. Mm. Uh, you know that running a cross-country in Surrey is different from running it in Cambridgeshire. 
you know, those are two places where, where I know. Wimbledon Common is different from the ploughed fields around Cambridge, where the mud would build up on the back of your shoe until finally there was so much there that it would fly off and hit you in the back of the neck. <laughs> and that was a, a very unique Cambridge ploughed field experience. <laughs> and Hardy gets that. And I love that sense of describing something which I know is real and which only he as a countryman would be able to get because nobody else would, would know about that. It must be great uh, to, to get the, to have that chime as, as both a writer and a runner to know when there's another writer on the page that must have had a connection to that sensation to sort of find that 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 um, that sort of uh, similarity between yourself and what you're reading on the page must have been really an enjoyable experience. Can I just jump in and say because this is kind of yeah. my current my current mission in life? Yeah, is, no, is is that I'm, I'm I really regret that the the posh literary world hmm. takes virtually no account of sports writing at all. Hmm. You go conference, literary conference, writers festival after writers festival after writers festival. When did you last hear a sports writer at one of those one of those writing festivals? You know, if somebody who has a reputation as a writer writes about running, they'll all get excited about it. Mm. Um, but other people who may be just as good writers who really know the subject, there is there is no attention given to them. And I'm not wanting to get over pretentious but I've always I've tried to write about running in a way that I think it deserves mm. because it's something which is really important in millions of lives you know there are other things that are more important you know falling in love and having babies and having wars and all of those things but running is really important and I think people deserve to have it written about in a way that reflects that importance and that tries to bring bring out the importance and 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 that's that's basically what I'm trying to do uh, in my in my books and articles, and that that sounds a bit high fluting. It's not. That's not because essentially, you know, I know that I've got to reach a very wide audience, and so mm. it's got to be accessible, and it's got to be funny and lively and interesting, and as as it always is. But it's it's something that really matters to people, and so why shouldn't it produce good literature? Yeah, I I completely agree, and I've read a I've read a lot of your articles and and your books in preparing for this interview, and I definitely think that you you capture that, and I think you're right. It does. Anyone who's going to embark on running 26.2 miles, it's going to be an, ex an emotional and very important experience for that individual. And I feel like to, to have that, that needs to be captured and articulated by someone who has the skill to be able to do it in, in, in writing. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, even the way that newspapers are orientated, the sports is always at the back. Whereas, always at the back, exactly. That's ne right. Yes. Ne never, never at the front. And it's only something, you know, if something particularly uh, gloomy or horrific happens, Boston 2013 for example where it jumps to the front but I feel that sport and in particular running and in particular the marathon distance has so much uh, of drama and humanity contained within it as an event that it needs to be uh, reflected that way that way in literature and I think definitely for people listening you absolutely capture that in in, in your book um, when running made history so I, a, a big recommendation for people listening to to read that because uh, Roger really does does capture that um, throughout all of history from his own personal experiences and from the, the, the experiences he's witnessed. And with all of that collective knowledge that you have, and sorry to throw this at you right at the end of the interview, but if there was one bit of advice that you've heard about running or you yourself has garnered as a runner that you'd like to give to people listening, what, what would that be? I, 
I, I think it would be, I, I just want to back up one little bit. Take oh, yeah. You mentioned the word drama. And I think for me, every race is a drama. Yeah, and that's the, that, that, that's the appeal of it. And you're absolutely right. And you somehow got, got, to, got to capture that. And so that's there for everybody. And I think what I'd say to people about the running community, and this is a sense of it as being a community, you will never anywhere in the world now find a community which is more totally open and welcoming. Don't go along and think that these are all people who are trying to beat you because in a race, if you go along in a, in a big marathon or something, and if you fall over, the other runners will all stop and pick you up. Mm. They will encourage you. If it's your first time, tell them. And it's kind of like church in a way used to be or ought to be. And I'm not sure that it really very often is because it's divided itself into so many different schisms. Uh, running is completely inclusive. Whoever you are, whatever you believe, however much money you have or you don't have, it doesn't matter. You just go along. And if you're willing to run, they will welcome you. Mm. That's what I always say about women's running. Of course, we like when, when women came up because they were wanting to do what we liked. The, any opposition to women's running didn't come from male runners. Mm. And Catherine has always said that. It's, <laughs> it's totally welcoming. So that would be my main advice is don't mm. be put on. Don't think you've got to be good before you show up and don't think that other people there are going to judge you because they don't it's, it's, as, it's as simple as that if if you're willing to try that they approve of you that's all there is to it roger fantastic that's such a lovely note to end on roger thank you so much for for coming on and being a guest on the big run thank you thank you thanks big thank you to roger for sitting down and chatting with us what incredible moments in history he has been a part of and witness to really inspiring stuff and a real inspiring person looking at running and aging i certainly would like to be posting those kind of times when i'm his age fantastic stuff next week on the big run is actually being recorded this week so we don't have a little preview for you but needless to say it's an incredible guest and one i'm very excited to be having on so tune in for someone who is a real legend in the world of running and if you're a youtube fan and you watch a lot of running youtube you'll definitely want to tune in to this next episode and until then if you're able to get out there and get running <laughs>